Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary Episode 52 Fantasy I have so many questions Then of course there's the question on everyone's mind Then I'll ask the obvious question Start asking questions You're the answer son Welcome to Mosaic. I'm your DC Films apologist, Doc, and I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love the Man of Steel and are excited by the Justice League universe. Faith, fantasy, magic, and myth in these DC films, Tolkien, Lewis, and Wonder Woman. This show dives deep into the Justice League universe for answers and insight as we celebrate the films that make up that universe. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for fans who love DC films and who love to chew their food. Wonder Woman is almost out, and I can't wait to see one of the pillars of comic book pop culture in her own feature film for the first time. There's going to be plenty of Wonder Woman histories and retrospectives in the run-up to release. This is not one of them. Back in episode 16, we featured the Amazon and the Atlantean, if you want a little of that. This episode is mostly about an element that Wonder Woman brings to the DC Trinity, that of fantasy and magic. Compared to the Man of Tomorrow's science fiction and the Cape Crusader's contemporary crime fiction, Wonder Woman embraces the fantasies of the ancient past, gods, monsters, magic, and mythology. Even if I prefer science, I'm keen to address the merits of fantasy. I've professed my love for science and science fiction, and I've admitted my prejudice against the arbitrary and inconsistent, omnipotent magic, and sometimes I use fairy tale in a slightly derogatory sense. On the other hand, I've acknowledged that the source of Superman's powers at their root is some sort of magic, and that the appeal of superheroes is in part power fantasy. And of course, I love imagination. At the library, fantasy and sci-fi are often mixed together and mixed up, as are the contents of their stories and the makeup of their fans, with decades of influence, crossover, and combinations. Surely any mainstream superhero fan is familiar with both rather than one or the other. So it would be ridiculous for me to claim that I'm not a fan of fantasy, that I'm not familiar, that I dislike magic. How could I deny all the joy fantasy has brought me to? For the purposes of this episode, I'm going to be fast and loose with taxonomy in this realm. I'll put links in the show notes where you can read the distinctions between fables, folklore, myths, and legends yourself. But while I'm not strictly adhering to the distinctions between the definitions, I do want to disclaim that for the purposes of this episode, the word myth is exclusively being used in its primary definition. That is, a traditional or collective story with no commentary on the truth or falsehood of said story or legend. I will be careful to avoid the secondary definition, that is, a widely held but false belief, a misrepresentation of the truth, a fiction, or imaginary thing, as in the usage with the Mythbusters or the Man of Steel Myths video series. The following disclaimer comes from the PBS Crash Course series on mythology. In many instances, the line between myth and religion is blurry. We're working with a definition of myth that focuses on story rather than truth. When one views myths primarily as stories or as literary art 
artifacts, it allows you to enjoy them and think about them apart from their value as structures of religious belief. So we're not definitively saying that they're either true or untrue, just that they're stories that people have used in a variety of ways over time. I'm careful with the word myth because religion routinely falls into that category, as mythology tends to deal with gods, origins, and religion. You know this when we talk about ancient Greece, Egypt, or China. However, it can be eggshells if talking about a presently practiced living religion to call it myth. And that's because religion can be deeply personal. Many were delighted to see Clark turn to clergy at a decisive moment in Man of Steel, or to see the spiritually themed marketing materials. Others may have bristled at any such association. And I'd say most probably fall somewhere in between in terms of interest or indifference. There is an idea that faith is not compatible with science or fiction or fantasy, and that viewpoint is shared by extreme adherents and detractors alike. With the upcoming Wonder Woman, some detractors may be upset at the idea of gods and magic in a world otherwise run by reason, or adherents upset by the inclusion of anything supernatural outside the one true God. However, this episode, we're going to look at two men who addressed both camps, and in the process, became fathers of the modern fantasy genre, J.R.R. Tolkien and C.S. Lewis, best known for Lord of the Rings and the Chronicles of Narnia, respectively. They lived at the intersection of mythology, war, faith, fellowship, and fantasy, and we'll survey it for some ideas about creating compelling fantasy, approaches to criticism, and overcoming disillusionment, all applied to the once-and-future films of DC. So some context. Last episode, we looked at a founder of science fiction, H.G. Wells, whose War of the Worlds was published when Lewis was born. These were turn-of-the-century men, going from Victorian and Edwardian England into the defining event of their lives, the Great War. As I run through some of Tolkien's life, understand two things. First, that he was a legitimate genius, if that wasn't already evident from his work. And second, that he wasn't some flighty person or cloistered academic in an ivory tower, that term comes from Oxford, by the by, with no idea of how hard the real world is, with no social life or skills or life experience. And of course, this doesn't do him justice, but we only have so much time. Tolkien was orphaned early on. Shortly after his father died, his mother was disowned for her faith or denomination, and that lack of support could be said to have resulted in her death to diabetes, after which Tolkien, for a time, was raised by a Spanish priest. He was a deeply devoted Catholic when he started at King Edward's school, where he was active and popular. He played rugby and made up for his size with such ferocity that he was made house captain after a season and awarded his his colors the next. He had a talent for acting and would write and perform plays, and later in life when he would lecture on Beowulf, he would open his presentations with dramatic recitals. He could perform Chaucer from memory, and he was a part of the debate society. He wasn't great, but it gave him a chance to practice his Latin, because, of course, the debates were entirely in Latin. Speaking of which, he fell in love with his true passion, 
languages and is said to have known 14 different languages, too many to list, many of them dead, some of them constructed, such as his two forms of Elvish, one based off Welsh and the other with Finnish influence. He was an artist and an illustrator. At Christmas, he would gift his children stories and pictures that he had done. He had four children to a wife who, quite romantically, married him for love, as he loved her from afar for six years before a confession where she broke off an engagement to another man to accept a proposal from a young Tolkien without a job, without prospects, and intending to go off to war, most likely to die. Tolkien wrote that he was impressed with her courage. <laughs> At age 22, prior to the war, Tolkien had many good friends, and when the war began in 1914, many were jubilant and excited to go to war. More on that later. Tolkien had decided to complete his studies, despite the stigma of not immediately volunteering, and by the time he enlisted in 1915, it was after the grim reports from the front lines had already made it back home, after most of Tolkien's friends were already dead. He did not enlist naively, but even with eyes open, he couldn't have been prepared for the Battle of the Somme, said to be the bloodiest battle in British history and the deadliest day in human history. On the first day alone, the British suffered nearly 60,000 casualties. For perspective, on D-Day in World War II, they suffered an estimated 10,000 casualties. The battle would stretch from July to November, and after months of fighting, in October, Tolkien was infected with trench fever and sent home. Tolkien's battalion was basically wiped out after he got home. By the time the battle was over, there were 1.5 million casualties. And by the end of the war, at age 26, all his friends were dead. While being orphaned and alone affected him deeply, Tolkien did not give in to despair, but instead found consolation in fellowship, family, faith, and simple pleasures and ordinary goodness. Again, more on that in a bit, but first, another source of happy purpose was in his work, which was his absolute passion. Tolkien was a philologist, somewhat following in the footsteps of the German comparative philologist Jacob Grimm, probably better known as one of the Grimm brothers, studying language as a vehicle for literature and culture through old languages, historical texts, and especially those stories that would survive as folklore, myth, and legend. Tolkien studied basically everything. Again, too long to list, but he was especially interested in Nordic, Norse, and Germanic myth, fairy stories, Arthurian legend, the Volsung saga, and Beowulf. He made his name translating Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, and arguably, single-handedly, made Beowulf relevant. Prior to his scholarship, Beowulf was studied primarily as a historical text, simply a fragment of old writing, dissected and analyzed linguistically. Additionally, the fanciful elements, like the dragon Grendel, were downplayed in academic circles. However, few had Tolkien's full grasp of languages, history, mythology, and religion to appreciate it as a literary work, as a poem, a piece of artwork, where the fantasy elements were central to the narrative and the context in which Beowulf was written and intended to inspire. You can find a link to Tolkien's groundbreaking lecture in the show notes. Tolkien's depth of knowledge and perspective allowed him to see more of the themes and intentions embedded in Beowulf and revived the relevance of the work. The New York Times wrote that Tolkien had revolutionized the study of Beowulf and, quote, Tolkien defends the centrality 
and seriousness of literary monsters, the symbolic value of such preternatural representations of sheer evil. End quote. In part, Tolkien wanted to restore the gravity, significance, and substance of fairy stories as serious literary works. In an essay entitled On Fairy Stories, he said, quote, The association of children and fairy stories is an accident of our domestic history. Fairy stories have in the modern lettered world been relegated to the nursery, as shabby or old-fashioned furniture is relegated to the playroom, primarily because the adults do not want it and do not mind if it is misused. End quote. His efforts to revisit the more adult traditions and origins of fairy tales, like the ones collected by his predecessors, the Grimm's, was one of the reasons Disney's dwarves in Snow White frustrated him. Even as he acknowledged the talent and the appeal, he was coming at the stories from the opposite perspective. Instead of repeating, popularizing, and canonizing the childish versions of myths, Tolkien wanted to draw out the value that adults must have appreciated when first constructing, revising, retelling, and evolving those early myths. In his obsession in trying to reconstruct lost mythologies, specifically the obliteration of the Anglo-Saxon English mythology by Norman Conquest, Tolkien grew to appreciate the sense of deep time, history, and depth that came from the gaps, the inconsistencies, the style changes, the thematic and ideological shifts, all tied to vast oral traditions and piecemeal writings which compiled collaborations between uncredited authors and were subject to later edits and additions and so on. Basically, a truly old story with some fundamental resonant value to be worth telling and retelling for all time would have a patina to it, signs and proof of age, in the work and in the telling and Tolkien absolutely adored and would inject that into his own writing. As was the case in Beowulf, Tolkien wrote Lord of the Rings with the conceit that he was drawing from other sources, including oral tradition, Middle-earth folklore, and fictional manuscripts written by the hobbits, like the Red Book of Westmarch. This explains the shifts in tone, language, or style in the story. For example, when the characters exchange dialogue in fully formed poetry, or a character launches into elaborate song. It's not Tolkien saying that the characters are capable of such spontaneous poetry on the fly, but rather citing to a fictional work who related the story in that way, to give the impression of many authors, many sources, and many retellings intentional artifacts to give his story the patina of history and depth. Tolkien also accomplished this through references and point of view. With respect to reference, they allow for a dense transfer of information. Simply saying dragon, if you had read the right books back then, might bring to mind Pendragon, Beowulf, Fafnir, etc. Robin's costume in Batman v Superman serves a similar purpose. Not a word is spoken, but to those in the know, a whole flood of story history and imagery comes to mind upon simply seeing the suit, adding depth and meaning. The name Jimmy Olsen has absolutely no significance internal to the story, but if the reference is understood, it allows the story to subvert expectations. If you're familiar with Christian lore, it turns a stained glass from just a backdrop into a specific symbolic reference. Quoted lines, invoked philosophies, and even celebrity sightings all compress meaning into a smaller space. Basically, this is how storytelling is in any era. The storyteller implicitly assumes large amounts of audience knowledge and context. If Rick and Morty flashes on a screen, it doesn't come with citation, footnotes, and elaboration on the connection, explanation, or meaning. 
It's simply there as a contemporary reference that those in the story or in the audience will probably appreciate. In other words, in real life, we constantly make references, often without fully appreciating that we're making references. So we should expect references to be made all the time in an authentic reality, even if those references are broken to us. In Lord of the Rings, the characters in the story know who Elrond is, or where the Blue Mountains are, or what second breakfast is. They interact with each other, making these references without regard for or whether the audience would get them, or even be able to get them. And in Tolkien's research, the inability to get them was common to ancient or lost mythologies, and part of the patina that Tolkien purposely sought to develop in his world-building. Which is to say that broken references are also immersive. Even if you don't get the reference or can't get the reference, the fact that references are being made give a sense of depth, history, and reality. It makes fiction as rich as reality, where you have to learn organically as you would as a child, through overhearing conversations and context, not fully comprehending and from a messy reality, rather than being spoon-fed footnotes. The effect is especially enhanced if the point-of-view character is learning along with the audience, because learning is one of the most sympathetic parallels we can experience in fiction. We might not literally feel what it is to be hurt or hungry or hunted like the characters in the story in the moment, but if we are learning the same facts along with the character, we are literally experiencing the same thing. With irony, we know more than the characters. With immersion, the characters know more than us. And with identification, we learn right along with the characters. All three have their place and time in the DC films, all deploy them to differing degrees. We've already talked a lot about irony in these films, we're not going to go over it here. And identification seems to be strong in our early indications of Wonder Woman. It looks like we're going to learn a lot with Wonder Woman side by side throughout the film. In terms of immersion, there are countless examples where the characters know more than us and refer to whole unseen histories and worlds. This universe is steeped in a sense of deep history. Man of Steel gives us only a glimpse into Krypton at its end, and only slivers of Smallville. If all we did was just go back and tell those untold stories, we might be able to support several seasons of shows which seems to be what sci-fi is banking on with Krypton. In BVS, Superman is introduced to a world already in motion. Twenty years in Gotham, a century of horrors, fists and abominations, references to a rich reality that we only intersect with momentarily for the sake of this story. We're rewarded with teases back into the life of Clark, the sins of Krypton, and a cosmology only hinted at in Man of Steel, reminding us that there is ever more to explore. Suicide Squad has the prehistoric age of the Enchantress and an ensemble with stories to revisit. Wonder Woman has an Amazonian history that takes place within our own hidden history, and Justice League has the epic era equivalent to a Lord of the Rings prologue. Whatever sense of gaps or disorientation you may feel from the unseen unknown references is intentional, and it gives a feeling of an epic, vast world that you'll never fully know. It's the feeling you had when you first came across a long box of unfamiliar comics, with incomplete runs, missing crossover issues, and not necessarily in reading order or accessible with a clear start or finish. You picked up the story in media res without context, without a clue of who everyone was or what all these references meant, but you were intrigued and drawn into the story and compelled to learn more through the long box 
and I'm sure with outside learning later. But it's not just the gaps and broken references in any one given story, but how that layers and interacts with other works, which creates the mythological quality Tolkien reverse-engineered in his works. Even if the story themselves are internally consistent, they have fantastic and oddball elements which speak to referencing other unseen, unspoken works. If the concept of superheroes never existed, if there was no Superman story, if you were creating him from the ground up, he wouldn't be so constrained or specific. The big S, the red cape, the flight and super strength. If you were designing a billionaire crime-fighting vigilante, he wouldn't be a giant black bat. And an Amazon in modern times probably wouldn't end up changing into red and blue armor to fight. Instead, these are all unavoidable references to the larger mythology of the DC Trinity, to the multitude of multi diverse stories outside this story. While the films contain an internally consistent why, the mythopaic why is because of the pre-existing canon of stories defining these characters. In creating Middle-earth, Tolkien was basically doing the same thing and forging his own Old English mythology in place of the one that was lost. He absorbed everything that was already available, read every book, every history, every scrap of ancient medieval myth and the surrounding mythologies, and used it to construct a wholly new self-consistent yet referential mythology. The characters and cultures within are pre-Christian pagans, Anglo-Saxon, Norse, Celtic, and so on, but of course, never said to be so. The dragons refer to Fafnir, Beowulf, and are of the Athorian sort. That's the reference which grounds and familiarizes the image of the dragon. But the text does not explicitly say or cite to the Middle Ages, Iceland, or Scandinavia. Why should the dragon have scales or breathe fire at all? It's a reference to external mythology. The reference is specific. We're not talking about a biblical leviathan, the guardian of a golden fleece, Satan in revelations, or the Neolithic Chinese dragon. There is a specific vision of the end result, but no explicit reference to the source. In other words, Tolkien absorbed all the surrounding myth, then told a story using that as his basis, yet in story, pretending that none of that myth exists, which is exactly the approach taken in Man of Steel. Goyer and Snyder started pulling Superman comics off their shelves, absorbing everything within the mythos, as well as original influential mythology outside the mythos, the Bible, Gilgamesh, Hercules, and so on. The biggest ones were the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's an Old Testament, New Testament story. I mean, there's obviously echoes of the Moses myth, and there's echoes of Christ's story, and I would say those were the biggest ones. You know, like I was reading Robert Crumb's Genesis. Uh, oh, Gilgamesh. Yeah, I read a lot of different versions of Gilgamesh. Then, in constructing their world, they pretended that none of those other works existed. Generally speaking, they don't wink to the camera and say, we know that this is just a comic book movie. Just as Tolkien tended not to tip his hand and say, those are Vikings and those are medieval knights. Which isn't to say that they aren't entirely without their winks and Easter eggs, but they're generally obscured. While there are more explicit references in BVS, they're still mostly not in-story citations declaring the outside source in most cases, and everything is done utterly with a straight-faced sincerity that Tolkien tried to pursue. He wrote that fantasy was to be presented as wholly credible and true. Quote, it cannot tolerate any frame or machinery suggesting that the whole framework in which they occur is a figment or illusion. End quote. If Tolkien were alive by the time superhero stories had built up 
up in mythology, and if they had been within his oeuvre, or even just as an external critic, he might have seen the trappings of every Superman and Batman retelling and revision as an echo of the myths that he'd studied with dozens of different contradictory retellings and versions. Or maybe more likely, Tolkien might laugh at how we call Superman myth when he's not even a sanitarian yet. Superman arguably isn't even a zygote compared to, say, King Arthur, with a 1300-year head start, and Tolkien didn't even take Arthur to be true English myth, in part because of modern Christian and Romantic French influences in Mallory's tradition over the Celtic pagan original. But I digress. Tolkien's commitment to and enjoyment of world-building is akin to what we find in these DC films. Remember that world-building exists on two levels, the rich body of work that already exists, then drawing from that body to create a deeply satisfying and self-consistent world, even if that's in the metatextual layer of an author drawing from disparate sources and works. For Tolkien, that consistency comes from an in-story fictional author drawing from fictional sources, which then Tolkien had to produce in different comprehensive styles, tones, cultures, voices, and languages. First of all, he uses a very distinct vocabulary that comes out of Middle and Old English, and I think that it's kind of unconscious in there that it seems more earthy. He avoids a lot of Latin words, he avoids a lot of French imports to the language, and he uses Anglo-Saxon, the modern reflexes of Anglo-Saxon, a lot more, and I think that makes it give it a distinct feel that seems closer to the earth and closer to the countryside, and he was deliberately doing that. In other places, he will use a kind of high-style language that, for example, when Eowyn fights the Lord of the Nazgul, that makes a kind of veiled references to things like King Lear, to Shakespeare, to the biblical style in other places. I mean, his style, it varies so much, and it's very deliberate in each place. It's insane! And it is, in part, why it took Tolkien some part of 17 years to write Lord of the Rings. Just one example of his perfectionism from his daughter Priscilla. Twelve years after he had begun it, Tolkien finally completed the Lord of the Rings in 1949, but he had great difficulty in finishing it. He would rewrite passages time and again, constantly seeking a better expression, and he put the greatest emphasis on the accuracy of the smallest details. I do remember him saying things like that he had to rewrite a whole part of the Lord of the Rings because he, or at least a whole chapter, which was might have been quite a lot, because he had described something as being by full moon and realized on looking back that he was a day in advance, that the moon couldn't have been full for the next day. And I mean, one person in a thousand of readers would probably have noticed that, but he wouldn't dream of leaving something like that in. It all came out of Tolkien's love of language, which is what he first started to develop, but quickly realized that language was tied to an ever-changing geography, history, genealogy, and more, and so he developed those things so that he could continue to develop his languages. There are about 900 characters in The Lord of the Rings, and diehard fans have reconstructed how they all tie together with family trees and genealogies, itself a crazy feat. But then you remember that Tolkien must have created all of those comprehensive connections in the first place simply to generate his story. Here, George R. R. Martin comments that while some employ this merely as an illusion, Tolkien actually did it. In any epic fantasy, the world is a character. Setting is very important, and that I think has certainly been true since J.R. Tolkien and Lord of the Rings. Of course, fantasy goes back to ancient times, the, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Ballad of Gilgamesh. But Tolkien really invented modern epic fantasy in its current form, and one of the things he did that was extraordinary was create Middle-earth in such detail. If you look at some of the pre-Tolkien fantasy, it's written more in a story of 
fairy tales. Once upon a time, there was a king. They may have names, but you won't know like who was the king's father or who was his grandfather or how the dynasty came to power or how long it's ruled or what the neighboring countries are. It's all told in this fairy tale thing. Tolkien gave us all these histories, uh, all these appendices and genealogies, and everything was rooted, and it seemed as real as England or France or Germany when you read these things. And since then, that's become the style for epic fantasy. It's something a fantasy readers now expect. They expect a fully realized secondary world, as Tolkien called it. And so certainly that's what I uh, set out to create in, in Westeros. Now, some of this is a magician's trick. It really wasn't with Tolkien. You have to consider that Tolkien was a very, very unusual writer. I mean, he was a linguist and a philosopher, and he spoke Old Norse and Old English. He was fascinated by myth. The story was almost secondary to Tolkien. He spent years creating his Cimmerillion, never published it in his lifetime. And Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit were like stories set in the world he created. But for him, the world creation and the creation of languages was almost primary. If you look at it like an iceberg below the surface, that was certainly true with Tolkien. With a lot of the fantasists who have followed Tolkien, though, it's a magician's trick. We have some ice on a raft, and we, <laughs> we want you to think that there's this huge edifice <laughs> underneath, just like with Tolkien, but there really isn't in, in some cases. As incredible his individual effort, I might take back his estimation of Superman because of the might of collective creation. Tolkien was single-handedly trying to create an entire mythology of Middle-earth, the way that it would have come into being over hundreds or thousands of years. But in all that deep time, how much material actually survives or is generated? Part of what makes Beowulf exceptional is that it's the only story of Beowulf. Nearly every hero, monster, or myth has retellings and revisions and references. But while Beowulf references others, Beowulf himself appears nowhere else and is referenced nowhere else. And that means that this character got one piece of work in the thousand years. By comparison, for superheroes, the first level is profoundly prolific. 80 years of different authors, origins, team-ups and tellings, multiple takes on continuities, multiple realities. By sheer iteration, Superman is maybe closer to the typical ancient mythological character than Beowulf. And for all that talk of influence, their fantasy stories were published in the 50s over a decade after Superman. But again, I'm rambling back to movie making. So in drawing from that body of work for the second layer, in our case, a movie adaptation, the references supply a rich stew of choice and no less commitment to a serious, self-consistent world than Tolkien. Tolkien would revise and edit with a perfectionism all on his own over the course of a dozen plus years. Movie production must move a mite more quickly, so instead there is collaboration in parallel, but no detail is any less agonized over. Every tiny decision in this movie was debated endlessly by all the different departments, by Chris, by Zach, by me, by guys at DC. There were no capricious decisions. Just as Tolkien completely overbuilt his world beyond what supported the story, the filmmakers of this universe have gone above and beyond to create a consistent reality to undergird their stories. Even if never expressly on screen, the filmmakers bothered to come up with a culture, history, language, and societal structure for Krypton. We drilled down really deep all the various art departments in terms of figuring out the history. Some of this we pulled from comic books, some of this we had to fill in the gaps that didn't exist, but the gods, the religions of Krypton, the different guilds, 
results in the caste systems, the language we created, a Kryptonian language. When you see Krypton, there's a lot of temples and things like that where there will be etchings and stone and all of the things that are rendered in the Kryptonian glyphs can actually be translated into things. So we wrote each god as a sort of motto and saying and each guild as a motto and saying and there's some Easter eggs in there. One of the things that we tried to do was depict Krypton as a legitimately alien world. We decided that Krypton has a much more formalized and socially stratified society than we do. So we liken Krypton to if you'd taken feudal Japan, but they had never encountered the West and had continued on in that system for the next 150 years, it's kind of what we imagine Krypton would be like. It's very formalized. We also decided that they had been civilized for 100,000 years, so for a much longer period of time. And it had also become a decadent society, and they'd become spacefaring. We've been spacefaring barely for 40 years or something like that, whereas they became spacefaring 25,000 years ago, something like that. In our last episode, we learned that set design went so far as to write unread letters and make unseen props purely to populate the world. In BVS, we can't imagine how a split-second screen appearance probably implicates whole swaths of world-building and continuity. Doomsday, for example, is an untold, but perhaps not unknown, story to the filmmakers. Chris Terrio, who was raised Catholic and studied English literature at Harvard, told the Wall Street Journal of his multidisciplinary preparations for Justice League, including the physics of redshifts, deep-sea biology, and ancient Greek texts on Amazons and Atlanteans, calling superhero movies, quote, the most rigorous, dramaturgical, and intellectual product of my life, end quote. One of James Wan's first tweets on Aquaman was about world building, and I have no question that there has been just as much commitment to the conception of Wonder Woman from the Amazons to the setting of World War I and beyond. World building is an industry where you can see talents like Weta's Richard Taylor with credits in Lord of the Rings, Narnia, and Man of Steel. And across the DC films so far, each one has an aspect reaching back into deep time. The Scout Ship, Doomsday, Enchantress, Zeus, and a prehistoric war committing this world to a sense of epic scope instead of something that just happened to happen last Tuesday. It's an epic treatment of source material sometimes considered childish trash, and for a while, an inscrutable niche hobby only interesting to and accessible by outcasts and French folk. Tolkien and Lewis absolutely knew that feeling and believed that they would fade into obscurity. I suppose neither man could have hardly imagined that their works would have become so immensely popular and become major motion pictures. They were convinced that they were too oddball weirdos who cared about stories that nobody else cared about, who were interested in periods of literary history that no one else was interested in. They were very convinced of their own isolation from the main stream of intellectual culture. But through that mutual encouragement, they produced these works that ended up changing the mainstream of intellectual culture, which I am sure they would not have believed possible. So insular was the enjoyment of fantasy and likewise comics. So profound were the friendships forged when you found someone who appreciated and enjoyed the same. That mutual love not only created the modern fantasy genre, but was the genesis of the superhero on Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. If you look at the yearbook photos, they really look like nerds. If the world is kind of put on a hierarchy of coolness, here's where the jock is and here's where the pretty girl is and here's where like kind of the nerdy kids are and here's where the kind of the outcasts are and then there's that special spot reserved for god bless them jerry and joe jerry read things like amazing stories weird tales and all these horror and science fiction pulp magazines and he loved to write joe read the same stuff but he liked to draw this is what they bonded over 
With all the time, attention, and effort poured into the crafting of Middle-earth, you'd think that it was always intended for publication and dissemination. But what's so extraordinary is that you wouldn't know Tolkien or Middle-earth, Hobbits, High Fantasy, or D&D without his friend C.S. Lewis, best known as the author of The Chronicles of Narnia. Lewis was the one who helped Tolkien publish The Hobbit and who pushed Tolkien to finish and publish The Lord of the Rings. What was Lewis's importance to Tolkien? Tolkien himself answered this question in a letter. He wrote, The unpayable debt that I owe to him was not influence as it is ordinarily understood, but sheer encouragement. He was for long my only audience. Only from him did I ever get the idea that my stuff could be more than a private hobby. But for his interest and unceasing eagerness for more, I should never have brought The Lord of the Rings to a conclusion. Here's what Tolkien says. But for the encouragement of CSL, I do not think that I should ever have completed or offered for publication The Lord of the Rings. It was because of his constant encouragement, Tolkien says. Lewis's secretary and biographer, Walter Hooper, relates a conversation he had with Tolkien. Oh, no, no, he said. I had no story had been written. I wasn't really interested in writing stories. I was interested in creating a world. And so it was the language and the genius and the land that I was interested, not stories, but you know what a boy Jack Lewis was. He had to have a story, and that story, The Lord of the Rings, was written to keep him quiet. <laughs> I think he meant it too, you know, because there are letters of his which bad the side. <laughs> So you wouldn't know Tolkien without Lewis, but you also wouldn't know Lewis without Tolkien. Lewis was also a genius who led a multifaceted life. Lewis was six years younger than Tolkien and grew up in a house filled with books where he loved Beatrix Potter's talking animals, and early on crafted his own fantasy world of talking animals, the Boxen, with his older brother Warren. Related to his love of animals and his hatred of cars, which he shared with Tolkien, one day Lewis declared that he'd only answer to Jack after the name of the family dog who was run over by one of the first cars in Ireland. His mother passed away and his father sent the brothers away to a boarding school run by a sadistic headmaster who would later be certified insane. However, his education afforded him quality classic training. Lewis was completely fluent in English and French by age seven. Soon he was reading Greek, Latin, and Italian, devouring Homer, the Iliad, and moving on to Norse mythology and Old English. His mentor drilled into him logic and rhetoric and was a proud atheist, which Lewis soon adopted as well. In 1917, at the age of 19, Lewis won a scholarship to Oxford. But unlike Tolkien, who was reluctant to go to war, Lewis interrupted his enrollment to join the military against his father's wishes. He saw six months of frontline action and was the anti-proverbial atheist in a foxhole, but was wounded by a British shell that fell short of its mark. Lewis was taken out of the war by shrapnel, one piece too close to his heart to be removed and which stayed there until 1944. He left the war feeling that he had earned his skepticism and reinforced his atheism. Like Tolkien, all his friends were dead and he would have nightmares of the war for the rest of his life. Lewis returned to Oxford, completed his studies, and became faculty, where, in a faculty meeting, he met a fellow fan of Norse mythology in Tolkien. His interest in mythology overlapped with Tolkien's, especially as a scholar of medieval studies, but his interests were broader overall. Lewis read everything 
everything. By several accounts, he also had nearly perfect recall of everything that he had read. And let me tell you about how much Lewis had read. In his rooms at Maudlin College, he would tutor students in Anglo-Saxon, and he'd have them over on Thursday night for beer and Beowulf nights. After a pint or so, Lewis would say to a student, pick a number between 1 and 25. Go to the 10th bookshelf. And he'd pick somebody else and say, pick a number between 1 and 8. Go to the 7th shelf. Pick a number, please, between 1 and 30. Go to the 20th book. Pick a number between 1 and 200. And the student would read line 22, and Lewis would quote the entire page. He had read everything and remembered everything he read. His broad interests meant that he could engage anyone on nearly anything, but that made him especially valuable to Tolkien, who was somewhat alone in his interests. Remember that while others studied what he studied, or might have similar talents in language or history, able to analyze Beowulf mechanically, piece by piece for example, he was one of the few people that saw the merit, myth, magic, and fantasy in a larger artistic sense. It was an incredible source of encouragement and friendship to be understood by Lewis. Lewis was immediately attracted to Tolkien not only because of their mutual love of myth, but because Tolkien's fluent Finnish and additional languages suddenly granted access to additional myths that Lewis had never heard before. To put it into a pre-internet comic book context, it's like being the sole person who adores comic books in school, then one day seeing somebody else wear a superhero shirt or reading a graphic novel, then going over to their house and have them pull out a long box of comics you never knew existed, all about your favorite characters or by your your favorite creator. What? Did we just become best friends? Yup! <laughs> It's easy to take the acceptance of comic book culture today for granted, but here are a few testimonies from those who remember. Neil deGrasse Tyson, George R.R. R. Martin, Jeff Johns, John Cassidy, Todd McFlarren, John Schnepp, and Jim Lee. We all knew who the geek person was in your class. There's the one, and they were not as social as the cheerleader and the football player. As a kid in high school, of course, we were geeks and nerds. Now, these are almost terms of pride, but in 1960, Bayo, New Jersey, these were not terms that had any positive effect at all. You did not want to be called a geek. You did not want to be called a nerd. At the time, a growing number of these geeks have one thing in common. They're superhero fans. Like, if you didn't play sports, you didn't really have a role in high school. You just kind of showed up and, and went to class. Comic books for me were like this escape. Being a frail child that was picked on at school, it was like I would hold up my arm and the muscles would like indent in or something. I could retreat into my world reading all of these comic books and imagining that I was these heroes. We were mentally arrested when you told people that you were collecting comic books. Right? You were a geek. People would make fun of you if you if you read Spider-Man or Fantastic Four. Like sports dudes would be like, oh, he's just a nerd. People that read compost, that was a it was a secret habit, you know, <laughs> it was a secret obsession. And so when you met someone else, it was like, oh my gosh, a lost member of the tribe found in this big long dry desert. Tolkien and Lewis had that same sense of recognition, and their friendship would span 40 years and literally influence the world. They were the most famous of the Oxford Literary Club, the Inklings, where they invited like-minded spirits to join for routine meetings at nearby pubs to recapture some of the fellowship of the foxhole and read their works aloud to candid criticism and sometimes praise. They were all authors and intellectuals who would drink, debate, and enjoy each other's company. Tolkien summed up the spirit of the meetings as quote-unquote a feast of reason and a flow of soul. But he was especially good friends with Lewis, and they would meet separately from the Inklings several times a week to share their love of language, mythology, 
tea, pie, pipe, pints and puns. The Inklings had a small nucleus of regular members, with others attending on an occasional basis. But at the centre of the group was Tolkien's great friend, C.S. Lewis. The profound attachment and imaginative intimacy between him and Lewis was, I think, in some ways, the real core of it. It was of profound importance to my father, that, that relationship, indeed to both of them. I think what I should concentrate on was the extraordinary support of mind, of taste, that they offered each other. I think he felt that he owed a very great deal to Lewis in his encouragement of him as a writer. And I think he did say, and certainly conveyed this, that but for Lewis's encouragement, when things were difficult, he might never have got The Lord of the Rings complete. So I think he felt an enormous debt to him there, and they mutually gave each other a great, great encouragement over their writings. I think that it was the most tremendous grief and blow when Lewis died, but nonetheless I think the memory was always there and the affection remained. In a letter he wrote to me, which was in response to a letter I wrote to him of sympathy after Lewis's death, he said that he had the normal feelings of a man of his age who feels he's losing his leaves one by one, but that Lewis's death felt like an axe being taken to the roots. With Lewis's encouragement, Tolkien persevered with the enormous task of completing The Lord of the Rings. When Tolkien would read the work so close to his heart to the Inklings, he would be relentlessly mocked by Hugo Dyson, who would groan at the introduction of every elf, until Tolkien completely gave up reading Lord of the Rings to the group. Lewis, however, sincerely adored and was addicted to Tolkien's story, and always believed that it would enthrall others as it did him. Tolkien relied on his son Christopher and Lewis to critique his work, and with their help, eventually published. The critical response was mixed. Professor Tom Shippey of Leeds University and Dr. Verlin Flieger from the University of Maryland elaborate. It was a book in an entirely new genre, and the publishers were worried about its reception. These worries were shared by the book's author, and and in a letter to Father Murray, Tolkien said, I'm afraid it is only too likely to be true what you say about the critics and the public. I am dreading the publication, for it will be impossible not to mind what is said. I have exposed my heart to be shot at. I think the publishers are very anxious too, and they are very keen that as many people as possible should read advanced copies and form a sort of opinion before the hack critics get busy. When it first came out, most of the first reviews of it couldn't have got it more wrong. I think uh, my favourite comment is by the reviewer in the the Times Literary Supplement, 25th November 1955, who uh, nailed his colours to the mast. He said, this is not a work that many adults will read right through more than once. Well, that must have seemed a safe bet at the time, because uh, it's 1,200 pages long, and you wouldn't expect many people to read it right through more than once. But actually, of course, they have. It is a book which has been read through by an enormous number of adults many more times than once. Another classic, I think, this book says, talking in a very advanced critical language, that uh, The Lord of the Rings is overcoded because the megatext has to be constantly explained. Well, leave that aside. But it goes on to say, nor are the histories and genealogies in the least necessary to the narrative, but they have given much infantile happiness to the Tolkien clubs and societies. Well, that's just, that's just name-calling, infantile happiness. But when uh, somebody says the histories and genealogies are not in the least necessary to the narrative, now that's dead wrong. That's not only wrong, that's stupidly wrong. Actually, what they give to the narrative is something which Tolkien was very aware of and which he often talked and wrote about and which he valued very much, and that is depth. 
So you don't just have, as it were, a flat, garish, shiny surface. You have something which has depth behind it and a feeling that this is a world where you can ask a question about it and you'll get an answer. And if you ask a question about the question or a question about the answer, then you'll get more answers because it's all there already. And that gives you an illusion of reality. But the illusion has been deliberately created. The critics were varied in their reaction to the Lord of the Rings. But why did some of the critics get it so wrong? I would think that they read it right and they realized what it was trying to do and then they realized they didn't like that. So they denied their own response. And that, I think, is the worst thing a critic can do. Uh, when you, uh, you know it in your heart, but then you think, I'm going to suppress this because it is giving an answer which I didn't expect and I don't like. So uh, I think there was a kind of a self-censorship there. I think that uh, one thing is that uh, there's a kind of ideological opposition. The Tolkien, in a way, was sticking up for the past and not just the far remote past, but also actually the near past. Perhaps we're going back to the First World War again. After the First World War, the dominant literary response to everything was irony. Now, Tolkien was capable of irony, but he did not actually write in an ironic mode. Actually, I think he was writing in a romantic mode. And that mode, they thought, had actually been completely uh, drained. It had finished. You couldn't do it again. And here's somebody coming along, insisting on doing something again, which they thought they'd buried but he resurrected it. Well, that couldn't be allowed, and so the feeling was, where this is a success, but we're not going to admit that. We're going to say it's a failure because on our little plan of literary genres, it ought to be a failure. You can't do things like that anymore. People are various, and tastes differ, and not everybody's going to like the same thing. I don't recommend The Lord of the Rings to people because I'd rather have them discover it and because I'm not sure until I know somebody very well whether they're going to like it or not. You know, Tolkien wrote an essay on Beowulf, in which he took on all the people who were embarrassed at the fact that Beowulf was about a man who fought dragons and dismissed it as a fairy story because they were slightly uneasy with the idea that a grown-up person would write or sing or be involved in such a story. And I think there's still a lot of people who would have that response. And for those people, that's not their book. And for people who like that sort of thing, that's the sort of thing they like. So many great ideas in there. Tolkien's vulnerability, the error of the critics and their biases, fashionable irony versus the recovery of romance, differing tastes, and stories for kids, not grown-ups. Pausing for that last one. Superheroes have always faced a similar stigma, but Stan Lee weighs in. Kids love reading fairy tales. I think grown-ups love superheroes. Both Tolkien and Lewis felt that fantasy was not intended merely for children. Tolkien went so far as to say that adults were better suited for fairy tales than children, since they need what fantasy provides more than children do. Lewis did not think they were mostly for adults, but in his essay on three ways of writing for children, he wrote, quote, I now enjoy fairy tales better than I did in childhood. Being able to put more in, of course, I get more out, end quote. As a quick aside, Zack Snyder has often repeated how his entry into comics was through Heavy Metal Magazine, making mainstream comics tame by comparison. I want to point out that for classically trained children, like Tolkien and Lewis, they would have been exposed to every purient thing in existence early on, as they abound in myth and fairy tales. I don't think I need to list them. If you know your mythology, you know that they're filled with sex, violence, death, and worse. These creators knew that there was more to the medium than simply the sanitized version. Familiar with the offshoots and the evolutions, they could recombine, restore, or recover the original merits for the mainstream. 
extreme, which is to say they all want to tell entertaining and successful stories, but there was also a conscious purpose behind the stories as well, a goal to recapture for fantasy or comics something with merit for adults. And as a derail to my derail, that's something that sets the creation of Wonder Woman apart from the world's finest. Basically, she was consciously created with a purpose beyond selling books. Superman was an iterative accident and inspired lightning. Batman was a cynical commercial calculation. But Wonder Woman was created because William Moulton Marston critiqued comics for not actively attempting to mold the minds of its readers, and his own life and proclivities found their way into the work, infusing it with fringe fetishes, but also a feminist message and purpose. Wonder Woman was created to indoctrinate and affect her audience, not just entertain and earn sales. As Marston once said, quote, Wonder Woman is psychological propaganda for the new type of woman who should, I believe, rule the world, end quote. On the point of entertainment and sales and going back to Jack and Toller's, there was some intellectual dishonesty in dealing with Lord of the Rings by academics at the time. People who definitely did not like Tolkien's book were many of his fellow academics, and this attitude prevails today. The academic reaction has been, I think, comically bad. I can understand people saying, I don't like this book, and I don't think anybody should write it like this book. But from the moment The Lord of the Rings was published, you've got people saying, I don't like this book, and nobody else does either. And that's just not true. You can say, I don't like it, and anybody who doesn't like it is an idiot. That's understandable. But then you've got to explain why there are so many people like that. And actually, it would be a better idea to try to explain why it was successful. But actually, there's been very strong aversion, say, to doing that. There were people who were reading the book and then averting their eyes and talking about some other book they thought they might have read. But they disliked it so much, they couldn't watch it. They couldn't see it clearly. Now, that, I think, was quite an interesting reaction. If you create that reaction in people, you have, so to speak, hit them on the funny bone. And you then wonder how he managed to do that. You may have had similar experiences or frustrations with these DC films. <laughs> Lewis took issue with critics coming at a work with Knives Out. In an experiment on criticism, he wrote, quote, The first demand any work of art makes upon us is surrender. Look, listen, receive. Get yourself out of the way. There is no good asking first whether the work before you deserves such a surrender. For until you have surrendered, you cannot possibly find out. End quote. Dr. Daryl Bach, Dr. Tim Baselin, and Dr. W. Hall Harris comment further. We're talking about Lewis's work in experiment and criticism, where Lewis is arguing that rather than have people told what they should or shouldn't like, they should learn how to read and really engage the literature and immerse themselves in it and learn how to receive rather than to simply comment on. And so it's a, it's really important. Tim, as you look at this, what are you hoping students get out of this particular section on literary theory. Well, in the beginning of Experiment and Criticism, Lewis is talking about the difference, not just talking about good literature versus bad literature. He tries to change the conversation mm -hmm. and instead talk about reading well or not reading well. And he talks about people who don't read well. One example is they don't read things twice mm -hmm. because as soon as they figure out they've read it before, they're done with it. Mm -hmm. They've used it. It already had its purpose. And he talks about reading well. I mean, imagine going to a family reunion and then you're invited back the next year or five years down the road or whatever. No, I've done that before. I've, I'm finished with it, right? Mm -hmm. That doesn't make for a good relationship. It doesn't. <laughs> mm -hmm. There's other things to be discovered and learned and to grow from it. So he's calling people into a, a listening well and sitting with something and taking time. If you have a favorite spot outdoors, you don't want to just go there once and then you've got it and you figured it out. It's something that washes over you and you allow it to affect who you are. So again, it's about listening well and 
and not simply using what we read for our own purposes and then tossing it and being done with it. I think it's a kind of immersive reading where we, in a sense, give up ourselves and die to ourselves. But I don't mean in a spiritual Christian dying to self-sense, but it's a lot further than simply what Coleridge famously called the willing suspension of disbelief, that everybody who works with literature and narrative has thrown that phrase around. Mm -hmm. It's deeper than that. It's beyond that. Aside from surrender and rereading, Lewis also argues avoid approaching works with prejudgment based on labels like lowbrow or highbrow, genre or faithfulness. As an exercise in extreme empathy, the last line of the essay is oft quoted, quote, but in reading great literature, I become a thousand men yet remain myself. Like the night sky in the Greek poem, I see with a myriad of eyes, but is still I who see. Here, as in worship, in love, in moral action, and in knowing, I transcend myself, and I am never more myself than when I do. End quote. During their lifetimes, Tolkien and Lewis faced their fair share of critics because they were countercultural and subversive at the time. We cannot overstate how profoundly subversive and countercultural the works of Tolkien and Lewis were in their day. Well, the soldiers of the First World War lived through endless days of mud, stench, slaughter, and death. Nothing like it had ever occurred in the history of the world. It shook the foundations of civilized life. Listen to Churchill again. All the horrors of all the ages were brought together, and not only armies, but whole populations were thrust into the midst of them. T.S. Eliot saw the post-war world as a wasteland of human weariness. I think we're in Rat's Alley, he wrote, where the dead men lost their bones. Well, after returning home from this war, Tolkien and Lewis might easily have joined the ranks of the rootless and the disbelieving. Instead, they faced the problem of war and suffering with realism, but not with resignation. For them, there is no shortcut to the land of peace. There's no primrose path to the mansions of the blessed. First come tears and suffering in Mordor, heartless violence at Stable Hill, and yes, horror and death at Golgotha. Their stories insist that we live in a moral universe. War is a symptom. It's a symptom of the ruin and the wreckage of human life, but it can inspire noble sacrifice for humane purposes. War would sometimes be necessary, necessary to preserve human freedom. So I'm going to ramble a little bit on World War I disillusionment because it sets the stage for Wonder Woman and her potentially stepping away from mankind. Also, as a quick aside, note that Tolkien and Lewis could use fantasy to talk about evil so freely because it is practically a given in fantasy that good and evil are supernatural and spiritual in nature, real tangible things to be talked about and infused into their worlds. It's more difficult to have the same dialogue from the philosophical position that good and evil are simply subjective, relative, indefinite things. Not that one can't have those discussions, but fantasy is a shortcut to literal devils, angels, and the like. Note that mainstream comics mostly fall in this fantasy, that there are real, tangible, outside, supernatural evil at work, like, arguably, Ares in Wonder Woman. As we alluded to earlier, when World War I began, it was approached with excitement and optimism. People believed that they lived in an age of unstoppable progress. From the pulpits and in the press, the propaganda was that this war would crush imperialism and spread democracy, Christianity, and freedom throughout the world. British futurist H.G. Wells wrote the article, The War That Will End War, in sincere belief, and which became the idealistic slogan you hear in the Wonder Woman trailer, The War to End All Wars, now used sardonically to mock the war with its better-known sequel. Soldiers enlisted excited at the prospect of grabbing that last bit of military glory before the institution of war was undone forever. That sounds in 
inane to our modern ear a hundred years removed, but that was the attitude of many going into the war. Now take that same kind of idealism and imagine it from Wonder Woman's perspective in the coming movie. Wonder Woman not only has a moral imperative to intervene, but it's one that she believes is divinely given, the purpose for which she was created and given life. And for her, it's less a matter of faith as we understand it, but a material fact, absolutely knowing that the gods give immortal life, meaning, and mission. She may believe that she has a concrete objective and the literal ability to end war if she stops the war god. Well, without going into it, we know how it turns out in World War One. The absolute carnage turned the tune to utter despair and disillusionment. If Wonder Woman's divine mission is to protect mankind and she believes she must protect them from the war god Ares, imagine her potential disillusionment when she encounters Ares, his evil and fallibility, realizing that she's taking her purpose from his ilk. And if the slaughter continues regardless, the judgment that she might hold against humanity as makers of their own ills. I haven't seen the film. I'm not saying that this happens, but if it did, Wonder Woman would represent the spirit of the age. Mankind gave up on God's belief and the value of life. Many veterans, war veterans, compose fiercely anti-war novels, memoirs, poetry. A large cohort of educated men and women become moral cynics. They sneer at the very idea of heroism or virtue. In the years after the conflict, the cruelty and senselessness of the war, of any war, for any reason, become the dominant themes, motifs of a generation. Think of the works of Hemingway, Farewell to Arms, T.S. Eliot, The Hollow Men, Eric Raymark, All Quiet on the Western Front. All of these works reinforce these themes in the public mind. The watchword, friends, disillusionment. Disillusionment. This fierce cynicism about liberal democracy, about Christianity, and the achievements of Western civilization. The shell shock veteran becomes a walking metaphor for much of post-war Europe. The mood is acute among the writers, the artists, the public intellectuals, but it also affects ordinary middle-class Europeans. Listen to historian Richard Overy in his book The Twilight Years. Dismay was a mainstream concern. For the generation living after the end of the First World War, the prospect of imminent crisis, a new dark age, became a habitual way of looking at the world. The world became materialist, not in the consumer sense, but in the belief that there was nothing more to the world than what you could see and touch and which could be reduced to matter. That there was nothing beyond this world, that there is nothing like the soul or the spirit. There is no magic or supernatural, and that fantasy should be treated with hostility. Tolkien and Lewis were soundly and roundly criticized as romantics and escapists who didn't grasp reality. However, their goal in going back to medieval and pagan works was not because they believed in magic or witches or dragons, but because they wanted to confront the age with a sense of external wonder, of things larger than themselves, which even the pagans understood before their material age. They wanted to express the same awe, wonder, and magic modern superhero fans enjoy. The best superhero stories are metaphors for experiences that we all have. It's the heroes that represent something and mean something and make us feel something that are going to stay. The superhero genre is not going away because people need to have things that make them feel like there is something greater. They have the potential for greatness. We all know what it's like to be boring and ordinary and wish we could do something incredibly beyond ourselves. We can all be a little better. We can all fight for someone else. We can all stand for something that we believe in. We should never, ever, ever stop from that. And I, for Forever. I need to say thank you to all those heroes 
from making me believe. Because good and evil were actual things in their worldview, the idea of corruption was very present in their works. We don't have time to go through every example, but of course, you have Gollum, once a hobbit, the Nazgul, once kings and lords of men, and Saruman, once chief of Gandalf's order. The influence of the ring brings about Boromir's betrayal and is too much even for Gandalf to bear. Tolkien wrote in a 1963 letter, Gandalf as ring lord would have been far worse than Sauron. He would have remained righteous, but self-righteous. He would have continued to rule and order things for good, to the benefit of his subjects according to his wisdom, which would have remained great. Well, why is that a bad thing? And in the margin, Tolkien wrote, thus, while Sauron multiplied evil, he left good clearly distinguishable from it. Gandalf would have made good detestable and seemed wicked. Huh, doesn't that sound like Tyrant Superman or the highly effective Injustice storyline? The corruption of ultimate good or power in the world resonates because in a fallen world, no one is free from its influence. No one stays good in this world. Tolkien carefully underscores this in making Frodo fail in his mission. In the worlds created by Tolkien and Lewis, the struggle against evil is possible only because there is a source of grace and goodness outside of ourselves. For all the accusations of medieval escapism, Tolkien and Lewis come closer to capturing the tragedy of the human condition, I think, than any postmodern cynic. By the end of the quest, think about this, Frodo the Ring Bearer has given up the thought of ultimate success or even survival. Hope fails, an end comes, he tells Sam. We have only a little time to wait now. We're lost in ruin and downfall, and there's no escape. At the climax of his journey, at the fires of Mount Doom, despite all of his courage and strength, Frodo fails in his quest. He fails. He chooses not to destroy the ring, but instead succumbs to its power and places it once again on his finger. I do not choose now to do what I came to do. The ring is mine. Tolkien explained that scene in this way. But one must face the fact, he said, the power of evil in the world is not finally resistible by incarnate creatures, however good they may be. Here is where Tolkien and Lewis depart most radically from the spirit of the age. Our modern tales of virtue and heroism, the gallery of superheroes, super cops, super spies, super vampires, whatever they are, we got a protagonist who invariably saves the day by his or her natural intelligence, strength of will, good looks, usually lots of firepower at hand, just to make sure, right? Well, look, the moral vision in the works of Tolkien and Lewis is fundamentally different, though, isn't it? The hero cannot, cannot, by his own efforts, prevail in this struggle against evil. The forces arrayed against him, as well as the weakness within him, make victory impossible. The tragic nature of his quest begins to dawn on him, to oppress him until the moment when a final failure seems inevitable. The mythic dimension of their stories now reaches the zenith. Like the best fairy tales, they provide the what? The consolation of the happy ending, the sudden joyous turn toward rescue and redemption. It's the reversal of a catastrophe, what Tolkien calls the U-catastrophe. The U-catastrophe, a decisive act of grace which promises to overcome our guilt, restore what's been lost, and set things right. Frodo's defeat, which is really our defeat, isn't it, is overturned by a power stronger than our weakness. Tolkien identifies this power, quote, as that one ever-present person, capital P, who is never absent and never named. And so it is that Gollum, driven by his lust to dominate, bites off Frodo's finger that bears the ring, only to slip and to plunge to his death into the fire. So the ring is destroyed, not by Frodo, <laughs> not by the Fellowship, but by a sudden and miraculous grace. In Middle-earth and in Narnia, we see this pattern again and again. Creation is good, it gets corrupted, victory is snatched from the jaws of defeat by an unexpected grace. You see this same idea played out in the DC films. Krypton's Age of Wonders turns into a myopic 
dead society. Zod and Jor-El's friendship turns into a blood feud. Clark, learning his heritage, becomes a horrendous upheaval. The unexpected grace is all the elements that forged the Man of Steel for our defense. The big examples of corruption in BVS, Batman's fall, Superman's public image, Lex, the media, and as we just said, no one stays good in this world is that idea expressly. What's the external, unearned, unexpected grace? It's Martha. Generally, there's no say in who your mother is and you can't count on your would-be killer caring. It's not something earned by the characters, but a you catastrophe of circumstance. We'll come back to Doomsday in a bit. With Suicide Squad, we show that you catastrophe is not the only valid way to tell a story, just a resonance in many of them. Certainly with respect to Wonder Woman, we already have the idea of corruption in the trailers based on the contrast between Themyscira and London. I used to want to save the world, this beautiful place. But the closer you get, the more you see the great darkness within. Welcome to jolly old London. Hideous. Yeah, it's not for everybody. From the perspective of Tolkien and Lewis, unrealistic hopes about the war were dashed and turned into unrealistic despair, which meant that, ironically, the cure to disillusionment was realism and reality, only using fantasy to recover and represent good to the world because we had become numb to it. The Russo brothers recognized the same for our superheroes today. I think because these films are fantasy, it allows us to intersect with those very complex issues and the difficult reality of them. And I think that's a very valuable experience for us all to be able to process those ideas and some of those emotions watching a fantasy story that is once removed. The value of the myth is that it takes all the things we know and restores to them the rich significance which has been hidden by the veil of familiarity. By putting bread, horse, or the very roads into a myth, we do not retreat from reality, we rediscover it. So overwhelmed by the onslaught of evil, we forgot our purpose and goodness. Despite the central place of war in their works, both Tolkien and Lewis tried not to glorify or romanticize it, and instead present the grim, gritty reality of war. They reinterpret that ancient story for the modern mind, and they give it a kind of modern cast. And I think that helps to explain its enduring relevance and appeal in our own day. There is a grim realism to both their stories, and particularly with Tolkien, it is almost overwhelming the sense of dread. You pick up this as well in the Chronicles of Narnia. But remember, those stories are for children, so they're not quite as dark and as graphic. Tolkien is willing to go a little bit further in how realistic the story is. You just can't escape it. The battle scenes, the sense of gloom, <laughs> the, the darkness of the story. No one is immune to the dark forces in their stories. That's one of the most striking things. No one is immune to being pulled into the darkness of the story. Despite showing this side of war, they also affirmed it was sometimes necessary to oppose evil and and that there could be heroism in that. It is heroism. It's the idea of valor, a sacrifice for a noble cause, that some wars will be necessary, some wars are just, even as we fight them perhaps in an unjust way, uh, they can have a noble, decent, and humane purpose and outcome. And that becomes one of the themes for both these men in a way that is really surprising because there was so much anti-war literature, anti-war memoirs, novels, poetry, I mean, scores and scores 
scores of books that came out in the 1920s and 1930s. And Tolkien and Lewis resist that. They are not going to let go of this idea of heroism and sacrifice for a noble cause. Both detested war, but they also saw extraordinary valor, courage, loyalty, character, and sacrifice, which permanently marked in their minds that heroism is real and not just a romantic fantasy notion. They saw real heroes, they saw actual goodness, and it permanently affixed itself to their worldview. The battlefields of France. It was there, as young soldiers, that they encountered these virtues in the officers and the privates and the medics at the Western Front. It was there, according to Tolkien, that the inspiration for his most beloved mythic character occurred. From his own account, the character of the Hobbit is a reflection of the ordinary soldier, steadfast in his duties while suffering in that dreary hole in the ground the frontline trench. Many of the members of the British Expeditionary Force, the BEF, were citizen soldiers of the Volunteer Army up until 1916. Drawn from the working class, the British Army showed a remarkable resilience, according to historians, relative to other armies. They didn't break and run. There wasn't a breakdown in morale. One of the most beloved heroic figures in modern literature is based on Tolkien's first-hand knowledge of the virtues of the men in the trenches in the Great War. Listen to Tolkien on this, reflecting on it in some letters. I've always been impressed that we are here, surviving, because of the indomitable courage of quite small people against impossible odds. The hobbits were made small, he explained, to show up in creatures of very small physical power. The amazing and unexpected heroism of ordinary men at a pinch. And then he goes on. My Sam Gamgee is indeed a reflection of the English soldier of the privates I knew in the 1914 war and recognized as so far superior to myself. There you have it. Well, the same could be said of any number of characters in Lewis's stories for children. Often it's the humblest or the smallest, like a mouse called Reepichi, who displays the greatest valor on the battlefield, right? As soldiers, Tolkien and Lewis lived among these quite small people, witnessed their courage under fire, joke with them, mourn with them, and watch them die. As veterans of the most destructive war the world had ever seen, they cannot glorify its violence and anguish, and they don't. But neither can they accept the fatalism and the cynicism that has become so prevalent. As an aside, my heart always breaks a little when I hear somebody say that they find Superman unbelievable because no one is that good. And it means to me that they've never met somebody that good. Hopefully you know real heroes and real good people. Tolkien and Lewis subscribe to that sort of hero who arises from perseverance and character. The heroism in their stories is not defined by a single act of bravery. The hero is the product of a well-formed character. The hero emerges because of a series of choices to put the welfare of others ahead of his or her own desires. The industrialized slaughter of the First World War had damaged the very idea of choice. Think about this. The idea of choice, of moral agency, moral responsibility, free will. After all, millions of men had been flung into the ghastly machinery of a conflict that robbed them of their humanity. They were mutilated, bombed, bayoneted, gassed, incinerated, obliterated without mercy. Roger Sale has called the First World War, quote, the single event most responsible for shaping the modern idea that heroism is dead. They reject fatalism, cynicism, and despair, and believe we still have a choice to do good in this world. And that's where we can return to the last act in BVS with Doomsday. If you want to impose the ideas of unexpected grace, I suppose you could put it on Wonder Woman, literally a goddess, descending down to save Batman at the last minute, but that's stretching what we're talking about. Instead, this seems to be the outpouring of the Trinity's well-formed character and choosing to sacrifice to confront evil. By insisting on our responsibility 
responsibility to confront evil, Tolkien and Lewis retrieve the medieval concept of the heroic quest. The heroic quest. Think about Beowulf or the death of Arthur, and they reinvent that for the modern mind. In an era that exalts cynicism and irony, Tolkien and Lewis seek to reclaim this older tradition of the epic hero. Batman, seemingly alone, decides that it's his duty to take on Doomsday. He doesn't defer to the government or run away. It never even enters his mind that this might not be his responsibility. Wonder Woman, who by the end of the film still has a somewhat dim view of mankind, nevertheless enters the fray against an unknown enemy with unknown allies and potentially undoing her seclusion in the process. And Superman? It's self-evident. Really, Superman is the most capable of retreat or relinquishing responsibility. He could just look for Lois and and then go on vacation on the other side of the planet, but he lays down his life for his world. It's significant that in battle, barely knowing one another, they are completely unified in purpose, even if not in execution. That's another episode. This fellowship is, of course, another wartime virtue that powerfully affected the works of Tolkien and Lewis. On the front lines and in the foxhole, they found friendships and camaraderie of such sincerity and intensity that it remained an ideal throughout their lives and works. In Lord of the Rings, fellowship transcends race, prejudice, station, and class. Sam was Frodo's gardener, but that distinction is completely dissolved in the fires of Mount Doom. Only those who had experienced this sort of band of brothers could so effectively write on friendship so real and noble. And it makes me excited to see Wonder Woman with her fellowship of adventurers and when the League unites later this year. For all your differences and opportunity to divide, an epic quest can forge friendships for life. Okay, back on track. Let's circle back to the different tastes with Tollers and Jack. One of the reasons I find their friendship so fascinating is how they exemplify the reasonable minds differing idea. Tolkien was a devout Catholic and met Lewis in 1926. Lewis didn't become a theist until 1929 and didn't convert to Christianity until 1931, principally because of Tolkien. For Tolkien, he was very insistent that there is a reason why we respond to certain stories as powerfully as we do, and it's because those stories address something that is very deep inside of us. And particularly the kind of story that Lewis responded to is the story that suggests that there is something beyond this world, that there is something that on this side of heaven we long for without knowing what it is, but in fact what we're longing for is heaven. This is what Tolkien tried to draw out of Lewis. He wasn't so much teaching him something as he was trying to get Lewis to understand something about himself. Tolkien finally cornered Lewis. And he said, well, Jack, your favorite myth is the myth of the dying and rising God. You love Osiris in Egyptian myth. You love Balder in Norse myth. You love Wotan, who was hanged on a tree and killed and came back to life. You love Demeter and Persephone who goes down to the underworld and comes back again every year, which is why we have the seasons. What's Christianity, Jack? Except the dying and rising God myth that actually happened. Two days later, Lewis said, when I set out for the zoo, I didn't believe, but when I arrived, I found that I did. I hadn't spent the time particularly in any kind of thought, but it was like when you lie there in bed and you realize that you have been awake for a while. 
Nevertheless, there was a disagreement of faith for about five years, if not their entire lives, because Tolkien became an Anglican and never converted to Catholicism. And those weren't trivial distinctions. Remember that Tolkien's mother was disowned and arguably died because of denominational difference. And the divide in doctrine caused Lewis to hide his marriage to a divorcee from Tolkien later in life. Their temperaments were entirely different. Lewis was the life of the party, often considered the center of the Inklings along with Dyson, often invited them into his home and lived like a bachelor most of his life. While Tolkien was committed to his wife and family and basically only included Lewis in his inner circle. If you remember back to the appendix of our Suicide Squad episode, Lewis was a Picasso, fast, inspired, and prolific, and Tolkien was a Cezanne, iterative, methodical, and perfect. They made a bet where each was to take on a genre. And on the coin flip, Lewis got space travel and Tolkien got time travel. The result? Lewis wrote the Space Trilogy, three complete novels, while after repeated restarts, Tolkien basically abandoned it after two chapters, partially working it into his Middle-earth mythology because his ambition outstripped his availability. What he really wanted to do was use the time travel story to make a new version of the Atlantis legend, but he was already wholly occupied single-handedly constructing his own English mythology, something which took some part of 17 years. And as much of a fan Lewis was of Tolkien's work, Tolkien basically disliked everything Lewis wrote. Nevertheless, and this is the point, they remained good friends and never rejected the other. You can have fundamental differences of opinion and still respect and love one another and draw significant sustenance from those relationships if you're open to them. This openness perhaps came from their openness to works. Their myths and inspirations came from everywhere. They didn't restrict themselves to one telling, no magic, only Christian, only pagan. They weren't worried that their faith was so fragile or of outside influence or of strict conceptions of canon. They read thousands of works across thousands of years with different authors, attitudes, and approaches, and you can't tell me that everything conformed to their ideals or shared very much in common at all. Lewis read and enjoyed and was influenced by H.G. Wells despite fundamental disagreements on faith. He said the same of Arthur C. Clarke and Ray Bradbury, but Lewis and sci-fi is another podcast entirely. But whether in reading everything that they could or in their relationships in life, they were always after what resonated with them rather than looking for the most dissonant thing. They would say, what what rings true in this? What is admirable about you? Rather than immediately looking to find some sort of fault or enforce some sort of canon. I'd like to think that's how you should approach Wonder Woman this June. You could hardly make your way through Russian folklore if you demanded continuity or consistency from every instance of Prince Ivan. It's not expected of mythology. And you'll make yourself miserable if you watch Wonder Woman looking for how it diverges from what you know. As an incredible icon, I'm already seeing articles placing her on a pedestal as a paragon, citing to perfect absolutes and virtue and character. You'll read again and again authors proposing Wonder Woman stands for one thing that must be preserved above all else, yet with each author putting a different emphasis on something different. And for those who are less familiar with the character, less familiar with the comics, less familiar with these films or adaptation generally, there's a risk of creating a false idol in your mind, a picture of what this picture should be, and expectations that it should be nothing less than perfect. In that sort of fundamentalist mindset, every inclination is to find fault with every divergence from your personal picture of perfection. If she's too much a peacemaker or too much a warrior, if she's too angry or not angry enough, if she falls for Steve too quickly or too hard, if she's too diplomatic or too violent or whatever your hang-up could or might be, I beg of you. 
Be like Jack and Dollars and put your mind and emphasis on what resonates, what's true, right, excellent, and praiseworthy. Extract that from your experience at least before you go digging for difference, dissonance, and damnation. You can still be critical. It can still be not to taste. You can have a difference in opinion and you can still debate. Lewis says, when one has read a book, I find there's nothing so nice as discussing it with somebody else who's read it, even though it tends to produce rather fierce arguments. But do not assume that difference is defect. The most effective stories deal in difference to great effect. Bonhoeffer said that every sermon should have a shot of heresy in it, which means that to really speak the deepest truth, yes. we have to almost flirt with heresy. Yes. We have to be willing to go out on a limb. Some people won't be able to follow us out on that limb, but if we really know what we're about, we can get away with it. Yes. Lewis could get away with it, and there were people, and there still are people, who couldn't follow him out on these limbs. They're mortified that he would do this. They think of it as blasphemous, but the rest of us are able to see more deeply into these truths because he's enabled us to do that. Many of the best Superman stories push the edge of canonical Superman with heresies meant to bring out the truth. A terminally dying Superman is at his strongest and most hopeful. A Soviet Superman shows what Superman gained from the states. A tyrant Superman shows what normal Superman restrains. Do not take difference as innate error, but try and see what it illustrates or enhances. See it as value added. Try to bring your differences from a place of love and fellowship after all. There's no other way that Tolkien and Lewis could have remained friends, support, and inspiration to one another otherwise. If you look for good, you just might find it. The Chronicles of Narnia are often accused of being an incoherent hodgepodge. However, similar to finding the wonderful Wizard of Oz useful as a teaching tool on populism in the last episode, in 2008, C.S. Lewis scholar Michael Ward published Planet Narnia, a book based on his doctoral thesis alleging that each of the Narnia books was intentionally and thematically influenced by the seven heavens or medieval planets. It's an incredibly intriguing proposal that Ward supports with significant scholarship. Based on a doctoral thesis, though, Planet Narnia is dense and academic. The BBC commissioned a much more accessible documentary called The Narnia Code, and Ward subsequently released a much more accessible book by the same name. The essence of The Narnia Code is simply this. There were, it was believed, seven heavens surrounding Earth many centuries ago, according to old astronomers. And each heaven had its own planet, and each planet had its own set of qualities and characteristics. And C.S. Lewis described this sevenfold system of the planets as a set of spiritual symbols of permanent value, which he thought were especially worthwhile in his own generation. C.S. Lewis took the imagery of the seven heavens and he turned it to Christian effect, so that each of the qualities of the planets becomes, if you like, a different aspect of his presentation of Aslan, a different way of understanding Christ's nature. So that Jupiter, for instance, Jupiter was the kingly planet associated with kingship, and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe is the Jupiter story in which kingship is the main thread of the story. Aslan is introduced as a king and the children become kings and queens at the end of the story. The second book, Prince Caspian, is the Mars book. Mars, as everybody knows, is associated with war. And here, Aslan is presented as the one who summons everyone to the final battle with a great war cry, the Lord of Hosts, mighty in battle. And it's that aspect of the divine nature that Lewis is emphasizing in Prince Caspian. In The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, it's the sun which provides the symbolism at the heart of the story. I hope that the Narnia Code 
book will show readers that the Narnia Chronicles are much more carefully structured and composed than they may previously have thought. That actually these books are very subtle and artistic. They're works of genius, I think. They're actually the products of a very disciplined and careful and learned imagination working at the height of its career. I mean, Lewis was really at the summit of his productivity when he wrote the Narnia books. Ward puts forth a strong case that by the time Lewis was writing Narnia, he had developed an interest in trying to, quote, steal past those watchful dragons, unquote, of our intellect where we're aware of clear allegory or intention. Instead, Lewis wanted to hijack our imagination and emotions. He said that you cannot really see it if you've seen it so often. You become inured to what you're looking at and you no longer see it. You take it for granted. And we have to recast it. And that's what he was doing in the Narnia books. When you recast it, suddenly people can see it. I've actually found that if I'm reading in, in a foreign language and if I know what it says in that foreign language, it's refreshed. And I can actually hear it in a way that I can no longer hear it in English because the English has become stale. I've heard it so often. It becomes ossified, and you can have the trappings but lack the power thereof. Yeah. That, to me, is Lewis's principal strength, mm. is that he was able, in so many different ways, in so many different genres, to refresh our understanding. That's a tremendous accomplishment. Um, getting past those watchful dragons is what he did so well, yeah. By the way, he wrote Narnia after the apologetics. In 1955, he replied to an editor who was asking for more theological articles. He said, such talents as I now have are given to catching the reader unawares through fiction and symbol. Catching the reader unawares through fiction and symbol. Isn't it nice to be able to kind of figure something out? Lewis believed that imagination gave meaning and purpose, while intellect was truth. But truth would fall by the wayside if you didn't first engage the imagination, to inspire somebody to want meaning and to pursue the truth. The obvious allegorical level still managed to capture and affect those who weren't immediately intellectually aware of it from the outset. Walter Hooper, Lewis's secretary, relates the story of an illustrator deeply moved by Aslan's death, only to recognize the illusion sometime after the fact. She had already done some work for Tolkien, and that's how Lewis knew about her. Anyway, he hired her to do the first book, The Lion, the Witch, of the Wardrobe, and she told me something very interesting about this book and what could happen to people. She didn't know anything more. She hadn't talked with Lewis about it anymore. Just illustrate the book. And she told me that when she was drawing all those pictures of Aslan being tormented by the White Witch and others, she had to rip up her paper because she kept weeping on all of that over the fate of Aslan. It just broke her heart. And so finally, she finished the illustrations and then sent them to Jeffrey Blass, the publishers. And she said about a week after that, still bothered by what had happened to Aslan, it suddenly broke on her. Oh, I know who he is. It's Jesus Christ. And this is the way you get past the watchful dragons. You don't want a person to be told, this is Jesus Christ, I want you to see that before you begin this book. No, let it happen to you as it did to her. However, those who saw it right away might begin intellectualizing the parallels and the points of intersection before they could have an emotional effect. That was certainly the case with Tolkien, who immediately called out the signposts and the symbols and 
and couldn't engage with the work, which he saw as a hodgepodge of mixed-up mythologies and anachronistic inconsistencies. He fell prey to his watchful dragons, as Lewis said some might. Ward argues that the genius of the hidden celestial theme is that it slips past those guards, but on inspection, is quite coherent. Here, he explains how his theory accounts for Father Christmas in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. People have often said, what is Father Christmas doing in that book? He doesn't really seem to belong there, does he? Because the Narnians don't show any knowledge of a character called Christ. So what do they mean by Christmas? There is no Narnian Christ, so how can there be a Father Christmas character? Indeed, that was an objection that Lewis's great friend Roger Lancelin Green raised against the inclusion of Father Christmas in that first chronicle. He said, you really need to leave him out. But Lewis insisted on retaining him. And the question is why? But I think when one understands that Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe is constructed to give expression to jovial symbolism, then Father Christmas begins to make much better sense because Lewis used to say, those born under Jupiter are red-faced. Now think of Father Christmas, loud-voiced, red-faced, jolly, the bringer of jollity. He's the uh, the nearest thing we have in our current Saturnine culture to the jovial archetype, to this Jupiter personality that Lewis thought had been too nearly forgotten in our Saturnine 20th and now 21st century. So Father Christmas as it were, crystallises that symbolic tone or flavour. And that, I think, is why Lewis included him there, even though, from other points of view, he doesn't very obviously belong. Whether true or not, this approach certainly creates appreciation beyond face value. It's a very ingenious and sophisticated, imaginative, structural logic, but beautifully simple as well. And you don't need to know anything about this in order to enjoy the stories. But once you do see this, you see that the Narnia books were written with a great deal more care and intelligence than we've previously given them credit for. They're not slapdash, they're not hodgepodge, they're not inconsistent. They're very carefully worked books. And that helps explain, I think, in part why they have become so popular. Because although we haven't been able to put our finger on this until now and, and see what Lewis was doing, I think we have sensed it. We have intuited it. Lewis has successfully addressed our imaginations so that we feel there are resonances and poetic harmonies between the different elements of each story. So to sum up some of what we've learned, let's look at how the Wonder Woman mythos includes many of the features and intentions valued by Tolkien and Lewis. Let's look at secrets, truth, beauty, subversion, war, myth, and wonder. Secrets, we just discussed it with Lewis. He wished to smuggle truth into stories the same way Marston believed that Wonder Woman could and should shape the readers' minds in an entertaining package. Tolkien felt that the allegorical elements and signposts should be hidden or subdued to make myth more authentic and effective. In the Wonder Woman mythos, she comes from a hidden isle of women, secreted away from the world of men and modern society, often allowing it for it to exist in a parallel secret history and geography within our own more plausibly. Wonder Woman often has an invisible jet, also putting an emphasis on hiddenness or secrecy. Additionally, there's the artifact the last of truth, meant to draw the truth out of the otherwise hidden. That takes us to our second ideal, the truth. As men of faith, both Tolkien and Lewis believe that they dealt in truth with a capital T, and while it fluctuates some, the lasso of truth and the existence of the Greek gods tend to align with that view. That there are divine, magical, or definite truths to be drawn out by the lasso, predicted by the gods, and the like. The lasso of truth loses some oomph if it's only a systolic detector, or if the gods aren't actually gods with magical power. 
Wonder Woman is called the spirit of truth because it exists in her mythos in a magical sense and not just a philosophical possibility. Tolkien and Lewis also believed in realism combined with divine grace as a cure to unrealistic idealism being dashed and being turned into disillusionment and disbelief. Not necessarily intrinsic to Wonder Woman per se, but in a roundabout way, that was the ancient Greek mythological approach to divinity. Instead of an ideal god, which might lead some to struggle with the philosophical problem of evil like Lex Luthor and BVS, the Greek pantheon of gods were highly dysfunctional family of fallible, petty, jealous, and wicked beings. Basically, a quasi-realistic expression of human nature drunk on power. So I suppose that no one ends up disillusioned by the Greek gods, but then no one puts their faith in them anymore either. Okay, we're going to pick up the pace. Next, beauty. We covered it earlier with corruption. Tolkien and Lewis believed that creation was good, beautiful, but became corrupted. Wonder Woman comes from Paradise Island, isolated from the corruption of mankind. Marston believed their feminine perspective and Amazonian approach to life could change it, and that leads to the idea of subversion. Tolkien and Lewis subverted the spirit of their age and were countercultural to the lost generation. Marston had radically utopian views that were obviously subversive and countercultural. Next, war. All are influenced by and include war within. The Great War had significant impact on Lewis and Tolkien. They saw the reality of evil, the need to oppose it, and the high costs of war. But they were also marked by seeing real virtues like nobility and heroism and fellowship worth remembering. World War II was Wonder Woman's entry point and the origin of her patriotic imagery. All ultimately accept their virtues and views are compatible with warriors and heroism, if not exemplified in and by the fight. On to myth. All draw inspiration and authority from myth. Tolkien put particular emphasis on Norse mythology and tried to create an alternative English one. Lewis drew especially from the Renaissance approach of mixing Greek and pagan myths with Christian theology. Marston heavily adapted Greek mythology for his Amazons. None of them were historically accurate or strictly adhered to their inspirations, instead heavily borrowing ideas, images, and references for their own creation and forming new mythologies which felt more authentic, aged, and credible because of their adoption of myth. And finally, fantasy or wonder all include magic or the supernatural to draw out and emphasize all of the above elements already discussed. Tolkien and Lewis believed fantasy was a gateway to faith. Accepting that there was more to this world than meets the eye was, was the first step in accepting the true myth. Their efforts would make publishers see the commercial viability of the fantasy genre for authors to come like Ursula Le Guin, Anne McCaffrey, and J.K. Rowling. For Wonder Woman, it distinguishes her from Superman and Batman and infuses the entire DC universe with a mythological history, supernatural powers, and everything intrinsic to fantasy. Her iconography and success secures so much for subsequent characters, concepts, principles, and ideals. Okay, that's it. We covered so much. It really was a hodgepodge. When you go see the film, we know not to prejudge or go in with unrealistic expectations that lead to disillusionment. Instead, as we said with Lewis's experiment, surrender yourself to the work and simply enjoy it. Let it tell you what it is. Let it engage your imagination and your emotions. And if it worked on you, consider what resonated, what was true, beautiful, and worthy of praise. And if there was recognition in what you saw, a U2 moment, bond with others 
others over it and be sure to praise and encourage the filmmakers. If you loved it, go get your friends to go too. Doesn't matter if they normally don't go and see DC. If you truly loved it and they're truly your friends, you should be free to share this. Otherwise, you miss out on a potential YouTube moment with your friends. Or they might miss out on their next obsession like Lewis loved Tolkien's Middle Earth. Worst case, it's not to their taste like Tolkien didn't care for Narnia. But nonetheless, they were fast friends for 40 years. In Experiment, Lewis proposes revisiting a work repeatedly to gain more from it. And this episode, we've explored countless techniques, ideas, and themes that you could try and analyze. Is there corruption or you catastrophe? Is there an epic quest, true heroism, and a hero's journey? Is there fellowship, disillusionment, or remixed myth? Are the references ironic, immersive, or identifiable? What is being recovered from the ancient past and being represented to the present as valuable? What is the historical context or impact in story? And you get the idea. Don't get me wrong, I intend fully to just enjoy this as a film first and foremost. I'm sure most will, and for them, that's more than enough. But for me, I'm going to enjoy, chew, and digest something so passionately put together and eagerly anticipated every way I can to come closer to a full appreciation. These days, there's so much focus on picking apart plot when that's just one part of a multifaceted work. Tolkien and Lewis drew a lifetime of sustenance and inspiration and joy from ancient works with barely passable plots by modern standards. So I don't want to just limit myself to plot. Even if others do, that's fine. You can't control what most people are going to do. I simply offer the suggestion that your enjoyment doesn't necessarily have to be swept up in the trend. The critics are sometimes wrong. The spirit of the time sometimes needs subversion. The lives of Tolkien and Lewis have so much more to teach than can even be touched on in one episode. But to conclude, why I picked Two Fathers of Fantasy to talk about a Wonder Woman. You can forget all the academics, the scholarship, the history, the literary analysis and explanations why and what for. What they share in common is fantasy. Superman tapped a mythic chord that somehow also penetrated modern America. This mythological story was not taking place at a time when people wore togas. This mythological story was taking place in the here and now. Superheroes are uniquely American creations, modern icons, but with surprising origins in the ancient past. Some of the oldest questions that man has been tackling since we first were scribbling on the walls of caves are who am I and why am I here? Mythology speaks to this idea. It speaks to the age-old question of what does it mean to have a life of value? The hero is an idea as old as humanity itself. In cultures around the world, stories pass down through the ages of great beings who rise to help guide humanity through its darkest hours. In seeing true, noble heroism with fantasy, we return that sense of awe and magic and myth to the mundane. We're open to feel and experience wonder. Superman, Wonder Woman are my people. <laughs> Amen, Patty. Amen. <laughs> okay, I've rambled on long enough. Thanks so much for listening. I just love discussing this stuff, and if you've been sticking with me, hopefully you do too. If you like what you heard, please review the show on Apple Podcasts and subscribe. Okay, I'm Doc, your DC Films Justice League Universe apologist, signing off. See you next time. You're the answer, son.
some editing endnotes. There was one episode between the last one and this, but I didn't have time to edit it and I had to push this one up to come out before Wonder Woman. The next episode will probably be a reaction to Wonder Woman and eventually I'll go back and edit that other episode when I have time. I promise that those episodes will be much more simple, easy listening. It was just fun to dive into my library and research, but I went overboard. Nevertheless, I still made three big edits. More history on World War One, an entire segment on the real history of Amazons of Myth, and there was much more Lewis. I'm going to wait and see Wonder Woman to see if the first two might be more relevant then, and I was light on Lewis because most of his story was wrapped up in a longer Planet Narnia segment, which I heavily condensed down to basically just the trailer. I think it's worth listening to a few of Ward's lectures, but it barely has anything to do with Wonder Woman. I mainly like the idea that we can overlook intended elements, so we should be slow to allege error. One point that got cut that for all the talk of Lewis being faster than Tolkien, it still took him 10 years to write The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And that was after he destroyed the first draft after harsh criticism from the Inklings. So I find Ward's proposal much more plausible and satisfying than the idea of accident or error. <laughs> okay, I'm derailing again. Basically, my dream is that there would be scholarly works, books, courses on these films for me to consume one day. Hey, I can dream, right? <laughs> A couple smaller edits, I took out a bunch of personal ramblings about heavy metal, Dungeons and Dragons, Suikoden, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, and Jackie Chan, <laughs> and maybe we'll get to those stories some other time. I kept coming back to sci-fi a half dozen different ways, but I cut all of those out. The most interesting one was on Lewis interacting with sci-fi authors, but it was off topic. Hopefully, if I have time, I'll look for some other extra to tack on to the end, but at the time of this recording, I don't know what that will be. And finally, I apologize for the fluctuations in my voice. It's a combination of allergies, exhaustion, and seminars, but this was literally my only opportunity to record, so it was this or nothing. But I apologize for the inconsistency. Anyways, I got my Wonder Woman tickets. I can't wait. I'll see you on the other side. You're the answer, son.
the answer, son.